Welcome to Creative Conversations, the podcast by Creative Ventures, where we muse about how the world is changing, opportunities in startups, and just our thoughts on making good decisions and running a systematic investment process in an environment with ambiguity, uncertainty, and rapid change. In other words, just venture investing. Enjoy. All right, great. Thanks for joining me here, Chidi. Uh, Chidi here was our summer associate here, and she did a great job on going through a lot of different uh, areas of medical diagnostics, which she's going to share with us today. Chidi, uh, can you give just a quick background on your, well, background? (laughs) Yeah, thank you so much, James. I've really enjoyed my time at Creative Ventures. And just a quick background about me, um, I just finished my my tenure as a summer associate at Creative Ventures. It's been a very wonderful 10 weeks, and I've learned so much so far. I'm currently doing my MBA, so I'm a rising second year um, at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. Um, just giving a background, I, I'm a physician. I worked, in family, I worked at a family medicine physician prior to going into business school. Um, my goal was always to go into investment, so this has been a great um opportunity for me and I'm very grateful to be here. Yeah, and we're very grateful to have you. So uh, yeah, looking forward to just diving into this topic since there's a lot to cover. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah, so I think maybe give, start with uh, giving a high-level summary of the topic that you're looking into for the summer. Yeah, James. So um, the topic I was looking into for the summer was medical diagnostics. And I really stumbled upon the topic, not necessarily because it was something I came in um, planning to do, but more because of the number of the kind of startups that were the kind of investment opportunities that I had the um, opportunity to evaluate. So looking back at my time here, most of the healthcare opportunities that I actually got to evaluate were within the medical diagnostics space. And I felt like this was the time was right to actually have a research report on medical diagnostics. And I think um, I tried to do a good job so far, so good. Yeah, and I think it was great. So tell me a little bit about why medical diagnostics? What makes it so interesting and important now? Yeah, so I think when you think about what makes uh, medical diagnosis important, you have to think about the whole healthcare sector as a whole. And I think most of the things that are actually making the healthcare investment in healthcare interesting now also applies to medical diagnostics. So things that we are all familiar with, like the aging population, in increasing the number of people living with chronic disease. This all ties back into being able to diagnose these patients on time to prevent um, any kind of um, sequelae from the, from the illness. So this is one of the reasons why medical diagnostics is really becoming an interesting topic now. And when you add on to that, the fact that there's now increased access to technology and capital. I mean, a lot of VC firms are beginning to um, Develop interest in medical technology in um, in any in health tech companies, and this um, actually enables startup companies to start thinking about oh, what can we do to enter into this space? So all these combined factors, combined with the increase in access to patient data, there's increasing increase in the use of electronic medical records now, and then in the increase in the consumer health consciousness, it just makes medical diagnosis a very um, timely topic now and it's, it's something that I think almost everybody needs to know about. So I, I think um, my guess is some of the uh, listeners might not be as familiar with the medical system or 
certain of these healthcare terms. Can you describe a little bit more about sort of the general landscape for why some of these chronic conditions, uh, why some of these, like what, what is the background of uh, the rise in chronic conditions and why does it matter for the healthcare system? Right, um, right, James. I think that's a very good um, introduction into this topic. So, if we, if going back and um, going back to the patient workflow, if you think about what, how a patient actually comes, um, how you start to have a patient come into the hospital, you start to think about what, um, what are the prevention methods that you have to use for a patient, and then if these prevention methods don't work, then you have to diagnose this patient. And then you move to the treatment and then the continuous monitoring. Medical diagnostics falls into the, uh, mainly into the um, spectrum where you have to diagnose this patient. And to your point about how um, chronic disease comes into play with medical diagnostics, with chronic diseases, you have to start thinking about if, you, if instead of actually getting a patient to the point where it starts to become a chronic disease, how do we look for how we can actually um, identify these diseases in the early stages. So things like, oh, how can we actually detect this, this uh, maybe pre-cancer situation, this pre-diabetes, before it gets to a chronic disease is something that is very important for, um, for healthcare workers, really, so that you can actually prevent what happens when it actually does become a full-blown disease. And so that's how you can actually tie in chronic diseases and the aging population to medical diagnostics. Another way you can also look at it is that um, as people age more, as the life expectancy increases, there's also going to be more, there's also, um, with age, you start to get more prone to diseases like diabetes, like hypertension, and that's where medical diagnosis come in, because now you have to actually have to um, diagnose these patients. Right, makes sense. <laughs> And it's uh, been interesting as well, just because, uh, yeah, we've, we've seen with the rise of a lot of these chronic diseases, um, significant increases in healthcare costs just because our system really isn't well set up for it. Uh, you have uh, individuals with chronic diseases often end up with multiple chronic diseases over time. Uh, you end up with having them actually take many, many more uh, specialists and doctors to actually treat. Uh, I think one of the studies that I had seen at one point was showing that uh, I think individuals with multiple chronic diseases uh, take on average something like 11 different specialists or whatnot yeah, through the exactly. medical system. So it increases costs by an order of magnitude, which mm -hmm. I think is just an important thing to think about since we also do have some international listeners. Uh, some of the things we'll be talking about relate to the American medical system just because of the sheer size of it and the weight that it has within the general global economy. But this is a problem that afflicts uh, just healthcare systems across the world because uh, diabetes knows no borders. So, right. Okay, so just diving into it then. Uh, and just talking about, okay, so we've established, yes, there's a really big important aspect of you being able to use medical diagnostics. Um, can you just, to, uh, to deal with some of these chronic diseases, can you just describe a bit some of the players in the system as well? I said, this seems to be one of those topics where when you talk to different folks, it helps to have a good sense of the landscape. So can you just lay out a bit uh, who, what, what players exist in the uh, medical system? Because I think most individuals who 
go to different uh, doctors or whatnot, they mainly interact with the hospitals, right? So they might not know all the different players who also just underlie the system in general. Right, um, James. So yeah, yeah. I, I think that's one of the confusion with the healthcare system. Really understanding who are you dealing with and what players um, do you have to actually and convince maybe when you have a diagnostic equipment. And just to lay it out in a very in the most simplest form, um, we, you can actually group the players into in the medical um, in the medical or the healthcare system into different groups. So you have the healthcare providers, um, which includes the physicians, the nurses. Um, the lab technicians, so anybody that actually provides healthcare, we can group them into the healthcare provider spectrum, and these are providers of healthcare. And then, of course, you have the patient. These are the recipients of healthcare. Um, so usually, the, what what makes healthcare different is that usually the people that you you use maybe the medical diagnostic equipment on, which are the patients, usually are not the payers of the of the um, pay, usually are not people that get to pay for the product. So um, where this comes in is that you now have these third-party players that includes thing, um, people like the insurance companies, so the healthcare insurance companies such as United Healthcare, Blue Cross Blue Shield, um, Humana, and other even international healthcare companies. And then you have the government, government um, in form of Medicare, Medicaid, and that try to provide support for elderly and disabled and poor, uh, maybe low-income patients as well. And then you, you also have the employers that provide health care um, insurance for their employees. So when you think about all the spectrum of the people that are in this, um, in this healthcare system, you have to start thinking about how do you actually navigate, who do you convince when you have a medical diagnostic device. So um, I think to, towards the, uh, we'll go, we'll actually dig more into, okay, how do you market your product to these people? But just to lay it out, um, in, a, in the simplest form of it, we can actually group them into healthcare providers. We can group it into healthcare providers, um, patients who are the recipients of healthcare, and then the third-party players. Of course, we have to also start thinking about the hospital administrators, which I'm going to group into the healthcare providers just to avoid confusion, um, at least for the purpose of this conversation. Okay. Uh, and just in terms of that then, and you're saying, so... I think when someone hears this and is familiar with, say, the SaaS space, they'll simply ask, okay, I mean, I understand there are certain blockers, there are certain, like, uh, advocates that I need to get on board, I need someone to evangelize. I, you know, you have this typical sort of sales cycle. Who, who, should, who should I have buy my medical device if, I, if I'm one of these companies who's going out there and looking to actually, you know, make a big company and sell to all these different uh sell to the medical system right so i think when we think about that um that's where it starts getting complicated but i'm um, just for the purpose of this discussion i think you, who, what you want with your medical device is two things you want adoption from the healthcare providers and then you also want it to be bought by the people in charge so most times like if you're talking about family clinics and private clinics you 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 could have the healthcare provider who are doing the physician being the one in charge of the purchase of this device but once we start moving to larger healthcare organizations like bigger hospitals laboratories you now have to um, convince two groups of people so you have to convince the healthcare providers that yes is a product that you need to adopt and then you also have to convince the hospital administrators that it's a product that you want to buy for your company 
The reason why it's tricky in this space is because the incentives don't necessarily align. Um, for most times, the healthcare providers, when they are not in the um, decision-making capacity, most times what they are looking for from your device may not necessarily be what the hospital administrators are actually looking to get from the device. So in the most simplest form of it, we can say that the hospital administrator's goal is to reduce costs and increase the profit of the organization. As we all know, healthcare is a business and you have to make money for you to be able to run this business. And then in the, in the, in the case where this, these two incentives don't align, so you have to look for a way you can actually convince the two groups that yes, this is a cost-effective product that you need. And then you have to also convince the, host, the healthcare provider that yes, this is also a product that you should adopt. And that's where we start talking about um, criteria for investment. And I, I think we'll actually dig more into this as we go in the topic, really. Yeah, I think so. So uh, just sort of following the natural path, I think uh, someone who would be new to the space and is just trying to explore it, uh, what areas would you say are the most interesting in terms of uh, medical diagnostics? So just different specialties, like how, how would you break down this topic in general? It's like, uh, you can make all sorts of medical diagnostic devices, right? And you could have something that you could have everything from like at home thermometers to uh, fancy ultrasound machines to a new MRI to even software that processes MRIs better. Like how, how would you even start wrapping your head around this space? Right. So James, this is one of the, uh, this is one of the, um, the tough part about this topic really, because it's so broad when you think about medical diagnostics, you're talking about any equipment that helps you diagnose a patient. So we can think about different ways to break this down. But I felt like during my research and talking to a couple of healthcare stakeholders, um, I realized that the most effective way um, I could actually think about interesting areas was to break it down by, in terms of the application. So what specialty is this medical diagnostic device used? And before I move into that, I um, just want to give a brief overview of some of the ways you can actually break down medical diagnostics, just for the purpose of just informative um, purposes. So, and there are different ways we could break, break down medical diagnosis. One of the ways um, you could do that is by what kind of technique is being used. So things like, are we using um, microbiological techniques or are we using immunological techniques could be one of the ways. And you can also break it down by the product. So are we using an instrument? Is this a reagent that is being used? And then there's the um, other things like geography. But I felt like the most effective way to identify interesting areas just for the purpose of being more structured was just by using the um, market by application, and that's the specialty being used. And in terms of this, I identified about five different specialties that were um, interesting for different reasons. So um, the key one of them was oncology, and that is the cancer space. And in terms of oncology, why oncology to me was the number one most interesting areas was as just as we talked about in terms of the rising, um, the aging population and the rising chronic disease. So um, cancers are usually, usually affects people once you get to above 50. And with the aging population that um, we're seeing in the US, um, I, do, I see a, the space of oncology actually growing and rising. And then in terms of the other areas that I also felt like were very interesting and I'm uh, very um, happy to 
deep dive into all of them, but just to give an overview, was cardiology too. And cardiology for most of the same reasons as what we talked about. Um, there's a rise in um, in heart diseases that we're, being, we're able to diagnose now. And then be- also because um, any problem that you have with the heart is actually a very key cause of morbidity and mortality. So I felt like that is a very interesting area that um, any molecular, any diagnostic company that is focused on cardiology would be would actually have some kind of traction just because of how severe most of the illnesses could be. And then just move, diving deep into it, um, we also have the diabetic space as well. Diabetes is becoming a very predominant um, disease in the U.S. because of the increase in obesity, the sedentary lifestyle, as more people have um, higher sources of income, as we reduce um, unemployment, we start to see increase in diseases like diabetes and obesity. So that's another reason why diabetes was interesting to me as well. And then um, we also had the hematology and clinical chemistry space. Um, This space was very interesting because um, this is a very, is a wide um, procedure that is widely used. Almost all, most of the, um, most of the procedure are, is the most common procedure that actually um, that actually recommended by physicians. And so that's why hematology and clinical chemistry was important as well. And then lastly was molecular diagnostic space. Right. So I mean that makes sense. Uh, once you take into account oncology, cardiology, and just diabetes, uh, some of the metabolic diseases, you have most of what is uh, afflicting the medical system right now, as well as many of the sources, causes, subcauses, whatever of uh, mortality uh, in most medical systems. One, uh, just maybe it's a little bit inside baseball but one of the things that you know if you talk about oncology with different healthcare investors one pushback that you generally get is well oncology uh oncology seems big because you know just in terms of uh just incidents uh it is bigger than heart disease but if you actually break down oncology into its individual cancers, uh, you end up actually having something, each of them end up being much smaller than just heart disease as a whole. Uh, Just in terms of that, since I I hear that as a common objection to looking at oncology, uh, especially from healthcare investors, what, what would be your response to that? Yeah, I think that the like I think that that is a valid point, but I think that that argument could be made for any of all these any other specialty that we have as well. So if you think about even cardiology too, if we break down cardiology into heart disease, peripheral disease, then we start getting we start breaking it down, and then you start seeing that it's actually a small space in each of its own spectrum. So I'm why I think that um that kind of the way people break down oncology is not really the most effective way in terms of healthcare investment. It's mainly because um, when you think about companies that talk about oncology, you rarely see, and this is based on the um, companies that have actually been able to evaluate, so say something like a biopsy company, you rarely see a company that will be focused on, first of all, they may be doing a rollout strategy where they go into one space just because of the, the large spectrum that they, they have to target. But usually, once you can get, um, say, once you can, you can get something like a biopsy, a molecular diagnostic device for biopsy, you should be able to apply it to maybe lung cancers, apply it to other cancers like um, breast cancer. So you, you do really see um, 
molecular diagnostic companies that say, oh, we're just going to focus on one cancer as a whole. And then if you do see something like that, let's say you see a company that just focus on diagnosing breast cancer alone, that is usually a big space that is big enough that you can say, oh, you can also make that argument in terms of say something like diabetes. Um, you, what if someone wants to just focus on diabetic food? Are you going to say that that's not an interesting space anymore because it has all these different components to it? Right, and that makes sense. And I think one, one nuance to it where sometimes uh, the criticism is valid and sometimes it isn't is uh, in general, where it might be valid is very specifically different uh, pharmaceuticals. So is that therapeutics? So exactly. uh, if you're talking about a specific small molecule drug that targets a specific cancer, it's not likely to suddenly become a broad spectrum cure for cancer. Exactly. <laughs> That's very right. Um, because like with treatment modalities, it's very specific. But in terms of molecular, in terms of medical diagnostics, it's not as specific as most people would like to think in terms of oncology. Right, which makes sense. And, you know, if you're doing different imaging, uh, for example, that uh, applies. I mean, some types of imaging will work better in certain cases for certain parts of the body and everything, but it's not a single cancer type. There, there's no, no, like, single cancer type imaging or whatnot either, just in terms of generality of these things. Okay, so that, that makes sense. Um, yeah, let's talk, uh, then let's talk a little bit about the different areas then because we've talked some about all right we've gone into all right this is why chronic disease uh, is causing some of this uh, as, well, as well as the aging population we've talked about certain interesting areas uh, in terms of specialties uh, can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the technologies that you're excited about here and interested in uh, some of the directions of what might be interesting in these different areas and then after that uh, we can probably jump a little bit into specifically how would you look at investment in the space, but what sort of technology trends do you have your eye on in the medical diagnostic space? Right. So I think what makes this, what makes healthcare a very interesting um, investment area is because most of the new, um, t um, new treatment modalities or new diagnostic equipments that are going to rise up haven't even been discovered yet. There's new research currently, I mean, new research going on every day to look for new ways to actually diagnose um, patients and discover all these things that we, we would love to know. I think the kind of technologies I'm actually very excited about in this space um, involves the use of AI. So there's a lot of potentials for using AI and machine learning to actually improve medical diagnostics. So we've seen a lot of companies come up with, um, it's still very premature now, but I, but I believe that with more access to patient data, there's going to be a lot of opportunities that you can have, like for instance, the use of AI to detect um, maybe cancer precursors for um, deadly cancer, I mean, for cancers like breast cancer. So imagine if we can have an AI machine that tells you, oh, you're going to have breast cancer. I know there's actually things that do that now, but if you actually have an AI machine that can actually predict it even more accurately, this is something that would actually blow most people's minds off. So I, I think about things like use of AI and machine learning to um, for early diagnosis of cancer, that would be very interesting. And um, I also think about how we can actually reduce the make um, 
the procedures less invasive. So take things like in cardiology, how do we actually make most of the procedures for diagnosing patients less invasive? Those are also technologies I'm very excited about. Um, we obviously don't have all the answers yet. Most companies are trying to um, sample and try and trying to just bring new technologies and I'm very excited to see how that plays out. But thinking of things like um, less invasive and procedures, um, more uh, more improved um, ease and convenience of collection of specimen. These are the space. These are the things in these areas I think um, could actually use technological advancement. Right, which makes sense. I'm curious. I'm curious just in terms of for some of this area, right? Uh, especially as you have new modalities of things, uh, there's questions around uh, regulation, how the FDA will treat it, uh, just being able to have adoption. Uh, One company that we've done really well in uh, at Creative Ventures in the medical diagnostic space is uh, a company called Echo Devices, which makes a small portable ultrasound. Uh, So just in terms of that, able to make it much cheaper and also shrink it down to the size where, you know, a doctor could probably walk around with it similar to walking around with a stethoscope. That makes sense. And that's something that is easier for say like the FDA or a hospital to evaluate, right? Because it's ultrasound, but way smaller. <laughs> uh, for, for some of these new modalities that we're talking about, either using AI for diagnostics or, uh, or potentially new modalities that are less invasive, what would be the process for uh, that sort of technology actually getting adopted? Right, so I think, I don't know if adoption is the main problem with these devices more so than regulations. So the reason why something like Echo was very easy to get reg- um, to get regulations was because it actually fit into something called a predicate. So having a predicate means that you can actually demonstrate that your device works very similar to another device already in use. So say something like Echo was able to show that, oh, we're very similar to the ultrasound, we pose no additional risk, and we provide as efficient of a result as the ultrasound. So it's very easy to get regulations, to get the FDA approval in that kind of situation. I think that, so for most medical diagnostic devices that have actually been able to review, they've been able to also prove predicates. Um, So even if it's less invasive, they can prove predicates. Where AI may actually struggle with is because there's no, um, there may be no predicate to that. And that's where people are becoming very um, innovative in terms of saying, oh, why just very similar to say, for instance, the radiologist. There's going to be new regulation issues um, pertaining, pertaining to that. But I think that as more as AI becomes more prevalent as people become more familiar with the use of AI and machine learning. I think it will actually be a, a more feasible process. Although right now, this is just still something that we're watching how it plays out. How does the regulation play out? There's no yet. There's not yet any set form of rules just because we are still. It's still a very new um, technology. We are still discovering. Oh, how can we use this in the medical space? But it's still something that we have to watch out for. Right. Makes sense. And I guess that leads to another question as well. And I think it's one that you talked about quite a bit during your time here, which is how do you actually evaluate these companies? Because in a more typical venture technology investor uh, context, uh, less creative, but you know, many other investors 
uh, you might just look at traction of a company, right? How much revenue do you have? What's your, you know, what's your ARR? What's your annual recurring revenue? What's your churn? What's your other things? And this applies especially for uh, software as a service, SaaS, right? Uh, in this case, if the moment you have revenue, it is uh, for say <laughs> it's something that has to go through FDA approval, uh, you're likely already quite valuable and an acquisition target, or in certain cases, you've already IPO'd. How do you actually evaluate things in this space in terms of just making a decision on something, uh, especially when you don't really have any of those traction numbers to go off of usually? Right. So you actually hit the nail on the head when with your um, opening statement when you talked about how and there's a time, there's a big time sensitivity when you evaluate medical diagnostic companies. So as you said, um, you you usually at an early stage, once you're working with the early stage companies, um, for a, is a company like Creative Ventures that does um, early stage investment, usually um, have to go in without really having all the information yet. Because once this company already have traction, then it just becomes something that um, a bigger opportunity that you just can um, you can invest in. Um, so in terms of this, um, identify about five frameworks that I think will help you to to actually narrow down on key companies or key um, opportunities that could be that don't necessarily have you don't necessarily have all the proof of concept yet. But you can actually say, okay, this company has a very high likelihood of success. And in terms of that, um, one of the key things that I noticed for medical diagnostic companies is really um, the the serviceable addressable market. That was a key factor that I felt like was one of the predictors of success. And in terms of this, it's just not necessarily about the market size, but really going deep, um, taking a very um, deep dive into who is actually, who are actually the people that this me medical diagnostic um, device will service. So giving, give an instance now, um, in terms of let's, let's look, look at a device like maybe the hysterosapigography, and that's, okay, that's the HSG device that is used for women with infertility. If you look at this device, what you're thinking about is, oh, it can be used for any woman of reproductive age. But the problem with that, with thinking that way, is the fact that that um, not all not all women of reproductive age are going to be eligible to use the device. That's because it just won't be reimbursed. Even if every woman might want to do the test, you just you don't qualify, and you're not. It's not going to be reimbursed. So we talked about how there is a third-party player that pays for these devices. So when you think about the serviceable addressable market for a device like that, they're talking about less than 20% of the total addressable market. And that's something that you need to keep in mind for um, devices like this. Sometimes it's not even very clear-cut. So in this example, it was a clear-cut case of women with, with infertility that have to use the device. But sometimes it could even be a case of, yes, almost all men will have prostate cancer, but are you going to really use this um, device on all men? Because at this point, you can't test all men for prostate cancer. You start thinking about, okay, what is the age at risk? Well, who are the people at risk for this, um, for this, um, in, for this disease? And who are the people that we want to target? Are, are we going to use this device for um, a boy of 12 years old? No. So in this case, you have to really, it actually requires some nuanced knowledge of the industry doing some research into the industry to understand, okay, 
who are really the market, what is really the market that we're trying to serve with this device here. And that's one of the key factors I found where it was a predictor of success for devices. And moving on, moving on from um, the serviceable addressable market, we move to um, another key component that I thought was very useful to evaluate these kind of companies is that it has to satisfy a need in the industry. And saying it this way, there's, um, there's a difference between need and want. Um, so in terms of the fact that we know that the people that reimburse um, the use of this device are healthcare insurance companies. Um, no, insurance, insurance companies are not actually, to, not to sound cra um, crafts, but insurance companies don't want to pay for just any kind of procedure. So they need to actually be demonst a demonstrated need for this device. And it, it, so I, giving an example for, of that is the fact that, yes, why I may just want a device that can tell me how long I'm going to live, no insurance company is going to pay for that. No insurance company is going to pay for my supposed lifespan. That is just something that, well, if I can pay for it myself, that would be nice. So once we, you have to make sure that this device that you're, um, you're investing into actually satisfies a need in the industry. And in terms of that, not just um, complementing another device because Yes, you could complement another device, but it has to have its own function within the patient workflow. And so that, those are, that is the first two um, frameworks I think you have to evaluate. And then um, the one that I think is also very crucial is there has to be a clear demonstrable path to success. And what I mean by this is that, as we said, as we, as we mentioned, most of the companies coming to you usually just have um, a concept. They have a theoretical um, scientific um, evidence of how they are going to um, implement whatever they, whatever they claim to implement. And in this case, some, it's very easy to get bamboozled by something like this. So we think about a, a case of Theranos and, and how they were, it was very easy to scam people so what you have to do to be able to evaluate companies in this space is to really take a step back and do some research and try to really understand the science behind um, whatever they claim to do. So for instance, if a company claims to measure blood sugar in the human body, there should be a science that actually demonstrates how this should be accomplished. And not necessarily that they have to already have a working demo, but there has to be a scientific proof of whatever they are, they are trying to accomplish. And I think that most times you should be able to um, evaluate that even without a very thorough um, science background. This should be something you should be able to speak to experts in this field and they should be able to give you their opinion on whether this makes sense or it's just, um, it's just some other fantasy that a new entrepreneur is bringing up in the market. And moving on, um, the other thing, that the fourth um, thing I, fourth framework I feel like I important, I, is important for you to evaluate this company is that it has to have a clear function. So James, one of the problems we see in this space is that because of the, all the interest in healthcare and um, medical diagnostics, we are beginning to see a lot of people bring up devices that, oh yes, yeah, they actually have a function, but it seems like they are more of a duplicative function. And the problem with the duplicative function is, as we said, reimbursement. So um, most insurance companies are on, would not want to reimburse um, a, 
you reimburse the hospital for doing the same function. So let's say you have a device that repeats the same work that a physician can do. And we see most of this problem with, um, with the new AI companies that are coming up. And as I said, these companies are learning. So as they learn, as more, as we get more knowledge, we will actually be able to separate what is important from what is not. But right now, you have to make sure that the company that you're investing in has a clear function and is not duplicated just because of reimbursement purposes. And then the last um, framework that I think is important to note, um, not, as, not as crucial as the other four, is that it should be humane and it should have an accept, um, acceptable or conventional mode of delivery. So for instance, if this is a disease that affects men above 65, um, is on, they are unlikely to put on headset. Let's say you have this new technology that uses headset. It's not just something that is co that conforms with that age. So it may be a good invention, but how many people are going to adopt it is a question to ask there. Makes sense. And one would hope that everything we do is humane, but uh, now it's a good, it's definitely a good thing to keep in mind uh, very explicitly. So just to summarize for folks, since that was a lot of stuff, Serviceable, uh, one, serviceable, addressable market. Two, satisfies a clear need. Uh, three, has an actual path to success, uh, especially around the basic science and uh, concepts around it. Four, a clear value uh, and function that isn't uh, a duplicate of other things because of reimbursements. And then five, uh, humane and acceptable mode of delivery, right? Bye. Okay, so that's so one thing that came out that's interesting here that again we keep circling back to some degree uh, back to because it is not not necessarily entirely unique but definitely uh, somewhat unique and does drive a lot of the different aspects of the healthcare industry. This idea that payers are separated from the providers and uh, there's a lot of these different aligning incentives. What? If you are a payer or, you know, just trying to understand the business model, psychology, way that payers work, um, you know, in reducing down multi-billion dollar insurance companies to single individuals, of course, uh, what, what, what is the, uh, how, how do payers think about what to reimburse, how much, uh, what is the actual business model there and rationale for adopting or not adopting things? Yeah, so with, with payers, um, payers are just uh, um, healthcare insurance companies. And just like every other insurance company, their goal is to make money. So it's just like when you compare a car insurance company with a life, just with, with um, payers, you just start thinking about, okay, they just replace the car insurance with healthcare, and then you get your healthcare insurance company. So it's, it's, it's always very clear for maybe entrepreneurs and investors in this space to know that, Healthcare payers are not charity organizations. They are not um, foundations, NGOs that are here to just reimburse every single procedure that you do. Their goal is to make money. And when you think about how they make money, so they get paid premium, the um, patient pays premium. And you have to realize that the health, the payers are looking for ways not to reimburse just because um, the more reimbursement you make, the less profit that you gain. And so regardless of all the marketing schemes that most healthcare payers um, bring up on TV about how they are really eager to help patients, 
you have to also realize that this is a business and the goal of a healthcare insurance company is to reimburse as little as possible. So when you think about um, if I was a healthcare payer and that was my business, if my goal is to make money, then I'm going to start thinking about, okay, what is the reimbursement that actually that actually I need to reimburse? So um, one of the things that you have to realize for healthcare and payers is what are their incentives? Um, a healthcare payer's incentive is to ensure that, okay, this patient is likely going to stay with me for two to five years. Um, I don't, um, my incentive is not to, is not to just reimburse every single procedure that's done. It has to have, and that's where the clear need comes into play. And that's where the, um, it has to have a reimbursement code. It has to have a, a clear function that in the scheme of things. So let's say you have um, a healthcare payer has to reimburse for a patient with say something like um, chronic diabetes. And then you, you they, they have a timing system whereby, and this is just actually going really deep and technical into this situation, but I'm um, just, as an overview, what you have to know for about the healthcare payers is that they try as much as possible to reimburse as little as possible. And that's just, and that is, that is what they are paid to do. The same way a, a VC firm's um, goal is to make money, the same way the healthcare insurance company's goal is to make money. And so when you think about things like that, then you have to realize that um, they are not here to help you, help your diagnostic company to raise, um, to increase your revenue. They're actually here to make sure that they just pay for only what is needed and what is needed alone. Right. So I'm curious just because, you know, uh, in terms of the spirit of making the most money possible, uh, I mean, a couple of things there that I think are useful to tease out. One is I think many people don't realize how short the duration of time most payers have patients. So yeah, three, four, five years uh, is more or less average in terms of how long many of these payers actually keep their patients or keep their lives uh, because you a lot of times at least in the US when you move uh, employers you also often move payer systems so you end up just not being uh, their problem anymore so things that have an ROI past three or four years hard sell uh, because whatever uh, whatever preventative measure or screening or whatever it is uh, whatever that might have actually gained in terms of long-term healthcare costs, they might not ever realize uh, in terms of spending right. money. So it's a so it's an interesting issue there. Uh, less of a problem, obviously, within um, state-run uh, healthcare systems, uh, just because you know single payer. Say the NHS in the UK, they're responsible for you all the way through, so they have a little mm-hmm. bit more incentive to optimize around. Yeah, long-term right. costs and everything. So that, that's a little bit of a distinction between national, international, uh, whatnot. But if, if you are a payer, though, like what is your incentive to ever adopt anything, right? Because technically speaking, anything will end up costing more money. And if I'm really in the spirit of purely just maximizing profit, I should just try to deny everything and try to avoid paying for anything, anything new, right? 
Right, exactly. So that's one of the problems we had even when I worked in um, Texas. We, we always had problems getting reimbursement from these payer systems. You had to demonstrate that there was a clear need for that procedure. So what happened in that case was before we even um, perform a procedure on the patient, we actually, actually called the insurance company and tell them the procedure we're about to do, as long as it wasn't an emergency procedure, just because of the issues with reimbursement. So that's something that people have to keep in mind when taking our medical diagnostic companies, that we had to call the insurance company, tell them the procedure we're doing, tell them why we're doing the procedure, and they had to, come, they had to say that they were going to reimburse that for us to do, the, do it on the patient. Otherwise, the patient had to actually pay the money um the um the procedure the money for the procedure at that point of um getting the procedure done right so i guess just in terms of this then uh what pressure is there to adopt anything new in general uh, just from the perspective of you know i'm a healthcare startup uh medical diagnostics or whatever else i want to get my device in there uh what what would i need to do yeah, so I think what you need to do for you to get your device adopted is, first of all, as just as I, as I talked about, when it comes to who, you have to think about who actually gets these devices adopted. So for, for most of these payers, they usually don't know what device was used to perform this procedure. So they know that there was a procedure done with this procedure, with this reimbursement code, and that's all they know. But for the health, um, the hospital administrators or the hospital management, in the case of a maybe small private clinic, um, usually they are called um, hospital managers, the, the goal of, for them is to save cost. So if you can think about it, uh, if you have a device that has the same reimbursement code as a more expensive, like a more expensive device, and then if this device is cheaper, then that the goal, then that hospital administrator would want to actually buy that device. So let's let me give you an instance so it just becomes clearer. Let's say that the same for maybe for a procedure such as hip, let's call it HPT. If it has a reimbursement code, and this reimbursement code is the same for any once that procedure is done, this is going to be the reimbursement code. And then one of the devices is say something like $30. And it gets is the same reimbursement code as opposed to another device that is three hundred dollars. The hospital administrator is inclined to get the three thirty dollars um device just because they are going to get the same reimbursement for the procedure regardless of what device is used. So when you think about that, you start thinking about the goal of you start thinking about you have to demonstrate that you're either a cheaper device and gets the same reimbursement. The other flip side to that, or maybe the other alternative would be that this is a much more effective device. So if, your, if this device, even if it costs 300 and it's, it, the effectiveness is almost about three times more than the other device, then you now see that, okay, most um, healthcare administrators at this point, just because they want to avoid litigations and other issues, they will also be inclined to adopt this device. You're thinking about okay, how do you make your device cheaper with the same reimbursement um, code, or how do you make this device way more effective than the current modalities we use at at um, at present? Right, and I think that's a yeah, that's that's a great I think illustration of some of the perhaps complexities of 
the healthcare system where who do you convince to save costs? It's not necessarily the payer. It is oftentimes the hospital administrator who just gets paid the same amount from reimbursements, regardless of what the thing is. But this new version is cheaper, and that's an easier sell for the hospital then to purchase and uh, see an ROI through this device. Bye. Yeah, and I think uh, just another thing to just lay out too is at least it's complicated in the sense that there's a lot of different market forces at play, but in general, payer systems too, like you have different code uh, revisions and everything every year, but one thing that just incentivize how some of these insurance companies decide what to adopt or what not to adopt uh, is Prob- I mean, the, the, it's more, it, it is still complicated, but one of the uh, ways that it ends up breaking down is just competition, right? Competition and PR in the sense of if there's something that is um, just a procedure or protocol that is, uh, that, you know, peop- uh, famous physicians, everyone is talking about is like life-saving, great, everything, you would probably get a lot of bad PR as a insurance company if you decide not to cover that because it looks more expensive so that would be political or pr pressure to basically adopt a new procedure especially if there's a lot of big names that are pushing it and there's a lot of uh, public acceptance of it so that's one direction another one is just general competitive dynamics between insurance companies so there's competitive dynamics against say Medicare, which, uh, you know, just insurance companies often try to at least match Medicare. So many of the things that come into Medicare, they often just adopt as well to at least match that big competitor that they have. But that being said, uh, sometimes these insurance companies do compete a little bit uh, on the perspective of, uh, you know, competing for ideal patients, especially ones that they expect will make them the most money and use the least services, but will look at what is covered and decide, oh, this is uh, something that I really want to cover because I want this patient uh, population. So uh, for certain insurance companies, they've talked about uh, IVF in vitro fertilization this way. It's like, well, you know, high income, relatively healthy, et cetera, like individuals who might want to cover certain aspects of this because although it's expensive and although theoretically we can like turn down certain aspects of this, if we cover a little bit of it or we look like we help make the process go through better, uh, (laughs) some of these richer, healthier, et cetera, patients might sign up with us instead of our competitor who is also offered through their uh, employer. So uh, I, I figure just to give that quick sort of snapshot of it, but in general, yeah, if you can, if the insurance companies can avoid needing to pay for anything new, they will. Right, exactly. Okay, so that's so. I think that's good. Then, if we keep uh, moving on in terms of talking about this, uh, so we talked about again, like what areas are interesting, what sort of areas that. Some of the technologies that are interesting, some of the challenges in them. Uh, I'm curious from a perspective of, uh, because I remember you talked some in terms of your uh, research about workflow and clinical workflow. Uh, How does that, because now, now we're drilling down instead of the payers and reimbursement, we're drilling down a little bit more to 
the doctors and physicians as well uh, who use the devices. How does workflow play into how you would see some of these devices? Um, yeah, so James, when you think about what really prompts the healthcare workers and such as the physicians to adopt a product and in terms of the workflow, I think time is one of the cru- most crucial factors that a physician has to deal with um, when seeing patients. So let's look, take an instance um, for a family clinic, um, like one of the one I worked in in, family, in McAllen, Texas. We had to see a total of about 30 patients in a day. They have to think about what actually, how does this device improve the patient workflow of this uh, of um, seeing this patient? So things like, oh, a faster device would be important if um, being fast is what is being is needed. Let's say we don't have a fast device, an already fast device for a particular diagnostic equipment. If we can bring a faster device, that helps the workflow to go even smoother and faster. So that is something that you, you have to think about what is the need, what is your met need in this particular specialty? So you can't just have a one-size-fits-all for every different specialty. So giving you an instance now, um, let's say we're talking about in the case of the echo, we already had the ultrasound um, that was being used, but one of the problems with the ultrasound was that it wasn't portable, so we couldn't move the ultrasound from one room to another. And sometimes you really want to, let's say you just see a patient or a pregnant woman and she wants to have her ultrasound done and you have only one ultrasound device in the clinic. So think about something like a portable ultrasound was very important for that um, particular diagnostic equipment. So this is something you have to really look into the um, the workflow, look into whatever specialty you're talking about and think about what is your med need? What are the things that physicians would actually prefer to have and they don't have now? And it's something that requires deep diving into um, and really understanding. It's not every time that a faster equipment is the best equipment. Sometimes you're talking about a cheaper equipment, a more portable equipment, a more accurate equipment. But it all, I'll say that this is a case-by-case basis. So it just depends on what specialty you're dealing with, where, what, who your end users are, and um, whatever diagnostic equipment you're trying to make. Right. So I guess just to get a sense then, it's in terms of where physicians sit in, terms of in this decision-making process, how do they end up affecting whether or not something is ultimately adopted or not? Because you have the payers who reimburse, and then you have the hospital administrators that pay for the actual device that get passed well that are responsible for looking at the pass-through you know payments or whatnot that come through the insurance companies how, how do physicians affect whether or not something is adopted right so with with physicians it could be like it depends on what um healthcare setting we're talking about so you have to know that there's a family there's a family clinic setting and private physicians certain where doctors or the physicians are usually the people that make decisions on if they should adopt the product or not. And that kind of situation, you're talking about physician in the role of a hospital administrator. So in that case, you have to convince those physicians to actually buy your product. But in maybe larger hospital settings where physicians don't have the same role, you have to you have um you you have to convince the hospital administrators, but you also have to understand that even in this situation where physicians don't have the decision making role, they are still going to be the people to use the product. So even if like, just imagine a hospital administrator um 
bring this new product and says all physicians have to use this. There's going to be a, a back, backlash if this product is not actually something that they want to use. Um, so it, it's, it's something, is the dynamics, you have to un, actually understand the dynamics. Is your product um, easy to use? Is your product more effective? And, um, and so how do you convince the physicians to use this product? And how do you convince the hospital administrators to purchase this product? Right, makes sense. So it's kind of the traditional blockers or whatnot, uh, potentially, if uh, if they truly really dislike the device or just doesn't work well with the workflow at all. Right. Okay, so that makes sense. Um, all right, so just uh, going through then, if we're talking about uh, what, because there, Ad Creative Ventures, and I'm sure many other places, you got a lot of different pitch decks and everything coming in. Uh, you talked some about your high level decision criteria. Uh, I'm curious, what else would you use to think about a different company, how uh, attractive the particular area is and everything, just from a, even digging down a little bit. I guess I'm trying to lead the question a little bit, but I, I'm curious about your thought as to regulation. Uh, so different FDA statuses, how that affects how you think about a company. Uh, and also just defensibility of the thing. Right. So I think one of the other things that most people don't really realize is important in these cases, everything that applies to a good investment opportunity outside of the healthcare space also applies to healthcare. So while it's very important to think about all these specific frameworks that I talked about and the interesting areas, there are also a lot of things that you have to think about. What is the competitive advantage of this company? And in terms of that, we are starting about what is the experience of the team? So the team also makes up a huge factor here. So let's say I see a company, I'm also looking at the team as I would look at in any other kind of um, industry. So what kind of team is this? Do, do I, does this team look like people that can perform? Have I seen demonstrable success among this team? So that is one of the things to look at as well. And then um, in terms of defensibility, um, what I'm really looking at is what is the, what kind of regulation for this product? What kind of regulation will be needed for this product? And in terms of regulation, it's, very, it's a tricky ball that you have to um, play. On one hand, if there's no regulation for this product, you have a low barrier to entry if um, other things are not also, if there are not also other defensibility um, um, techniques that is being used in this product. So in terms of regulation, you're looking at, okay, how high is the barrier? How high is regulations? And is this something that you, is this a risk that you want to take? So for instance, um, if it has um, high regulations, how long, what the timeline that it takes to get there? And is this something that you want to be a part of? So that's something you have to think about as well. Um, but one of the major things that I think is crucial in a medical diagnostic company that in terms of defensibility is really the skills and training of, of the um, individuals involved in this company. And why, why I say that is because the more skills and training that you need to identify and solve this problem, the more defensibility you have, even more than like, even like in, rather than in, in the case of regulations where you have to take on the risk of, oh, we have to wait for this product to be regulated. Skills and training is already something that is already there with the team, but can actually give you defensibility. So for instance, if you have a very highly skilled neurosurgeon, 
you're likely not going to have as much competition for that product as say just having um, a family physician so because of the number of people that have, that have been trained in neurosurgery to be able to actually take on this product and solve this problem so these are the um, key things just like you would look at for in any, any other company and I think that is something you should also keep in mind while reviewing a medical diagnostic company even aside from Specific right, which makes sense. And I think the, does that also apply to say uh, someone who has a lot of experience in terms of microfluidics or some of these other tools that might go into more specialized uh, medical devices or medical, uh, yeah, essentially more specialized medical devices. So is it just healthcare specialties or is it other technical specialties as well? It's any kind of technical specialty. The more, in short, the, the more specialized in knowledge is like, I don't know anything about microfluidity. So definitely that is something that you should be watching out for. And just because, and how do you know once, once any kind of specialty where you, you just have very few people that are knowledgeable in that area, you're definitely going to have very little competition. And that's something to keep in mind. So it doesn't have to be healthcare. It depends, just depending on what the product you're trying to bring to mind is and what kind of specialty is required for that product. Right, so makes sense. Uh, I guess I was, I'm probably about to jump a little bit into thinking about what the future holds and just speculating it. So in general, for creative ventures, we think about what's going on right now. Uh, we don't make decisions on speculation, but it's always a little bit fun to think about what the landscape looks like in the future. I guess before we jump into that, is there anything else you wanna add, Chidi, about uh, just the space, um, things you would look at, things you would think about? Um, no, not really. I think we've talked, we've talked about a couple of them. And I do have a paper that anybody that wants to get more information can read. So I think it's fine for us to jump into the other um, areas that you're thinking about. Okay, so we, we talked a little bit about AI and diagnostics. So that's going to be something that the FDA will need to figure out and everything. But Aside from that, uh, what are you seeing in terms of the future? Like, what will change in terms of the landscape? What are you thinking will be the big things that will shift uh, how we see healthcare or what direction healthcare takes in the future? Just, I guess, dreaming a little bit. What, what, do, what would you see happening in the next five to ten years? When you say healthcare, are you talking about medical diagnostics or healthcare as a whole? I think healthcare as a whole, uh, I, I mean, to some degree, I'm leading a bit, right? But it's, uh, you know, I'm thinking about some of the things that everyone talks about in terms of value-based care, some of the stuff in precision medicine, some of the other things. Uh, maybe we'll, maybe it just all won't work and the entire healthcare system will collapse under its own weight uh, because of cost concerns. I don't know. I mean, I'm curious what you think. Right. So I'm, um I, ha I like to have a very optimistic view of our healthcare. I think that we're actually moving to a space where most people are very aware of how much um, the cost of healthcare is affecting individual lives. So there's a lot of companies coming up with um, new plans and strategies. We have to think about the um, Amazon and um, Chase Berkshire um, 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 combination, where they're, I mean, partnership, where they want to try to reduce healthcare. So I've seen a lot of things like that. Um, one, of, one of the things I think that most people don't really know about yet is things like the shift towards retail healthcare. So 
before if you had any kind of um disease i i, I vividly remember having a cold and i had to go to the emergency room maybe for lack of knowing better and also because i just didn't know that there was an alternative to where to go but now you're seeing things like the um walgreens cvs having retail healthcare. so these are people that are coming into the market to reduce the rising cost of healthcare. And I think that that's something that we actually start seeing a shift into. And with that, we start to see more of at-home diagnostic care. And that's something that is an important area that I think we should um, put in view. I was recently at a conference where they talked about the shift towards retail healthcare. And um, for context, retail healthcare will be something you can get from, say, you go to CVS, so you don't have to go to a clinic or a hospital maybe when you have like a common cold or flu and that tries to help to reduce the cost of healthcare. So I see a lot of um, positive change towards reducing the cost of healthcare. I also see value-based, even though value-based healthcare right now is one of those words that feel good words that people throw around, I see it actually taking a bigger shape as more people start to focus on, okay, what is the outcome? Although, um, instead of, oh, what is the, what did you do for the patient? And then you get reimbursed. More hospitals, even payer systems are beginning to focus more on what was the outcome of this procedure? What was the outcome of this treatment? And then um, the shift towards value-based healthcare will start making us to focus more on diagnostic equipment and even treatment modalities that actually are effective as a excuse me as opposed to just being as opposed to just being um something that is just an addition into the workflow. So these are all the trends that I think are are coming up. I do think that um there's because healthcare right now makes about 18% of GDP and this is not sustainable for any kind of um environment, for any kind of government, even for the richest nation in the world. So I do see things like this kind of change coming in to start to upset the rising cost of healthcare. And I think that is something that could actually come into play. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, yeah, I mean, at least here, every time we hear uh, outcomes-based or value-based or whatnot, and if you're not targeting specifically Medicare uh, part, uh, if you're not specifically targeting uh, Medicare Advantage, we often discount it quite a bit just because it is definitely wishing for a future that is bright, theoretically, uh, that is bright but isn't really here yet. So it is interesting right. to see how it shifts over time. I don't know, what do you think of uh, telemedicine as well? Like that's another thing that other than just uh, retail health uh, retail healthcare uh, that a lot of people have been talking about. Um, so with telemedicine, so I actually did work in the telemedicine space for a while. And with telemedicine, I think... I think most of the expectations from telemedicine would not be accomplished just because of the limitation with telemedicine. You still have to see the patient. But I do see it coming into play um, maybe for things like visual health, things like remote surgery. I see telemedicine playing a huge, um, a more a bigger role when you maybe let's say you're talking about a rural patient in um, Wisconsin needing specialist um, operation from maybe a physician in Mayo Clinic. Not, so at this point, I'm beginning to see a role where telemedicine can play or visual health can play a role where the patient doesn't necessarily have to move from Wisconsin to Mayo Clinic and it could actually do something like a remote surgery. But still, there's still going to be a lot of, there's still a lot of um, 
limitations to telemedicine and i don't think it's not fulfilled the kind of promise that most people have expected from it um but it could it actually has a huge role to play even in the future of medicine yeah i mean that makes sense it's uh it is interesting to see a lot of the experimentation with it but yeah at least for us uh, one issue we've also seen is just uh it, it's there's a lot of different regulations and a lot of different things that you have to actually abide by state by state so we've also seen some of these telemedicine plays which really have their promise for scaling out in a big way uh, especially since you know they're an addition to the existing system they aren't a replacement hospital or anything we see them end up having trouble just because they have a lot many of them have difficulty expanding beyond a single state uh, or, or as they expand state by state is essentially doing everything from scratch over again for each state that they go into so We've seen, definitely seen a lot of difficulty there. Um, yeah, so just in terms then of uh, just when you're thinking about, you know, other areas and everything, again, if you're dreaming a little bit, I know you've looked mostly into medical diagnostics, but things around either precision medicine, at-home stuff, uh, some of the stuff that's more out there, uh, startups that utilize data from Apple Watches, what, what do you have your eye on as a thing to look out for in the future? Yeah, so things to look out for, and uh, permit me to say this again, will be anything that actually tries to start using like the new things that we've discovered, like access to um, patient data. And I think companies that start to use access to patient data to improve healthcare will be something to look out for. I think it's, um, you look out for things that maybe infuse AI with patient data, blockchain. Um, these are all the things that I think are very interesting opportunities in healthcare. In addition to that, um, I'm beginning to see more at home there's going to be more at-home monitoring, so um, reducing the time, the length of time people stay in the hospital. So when you talk about things like peritoneal dialysis that can be done at home, um, um, other things that could be done at home as opposed to just being in the hospital on the hospital bed, which actually increases the, I mean, it raises the cost of healthcare. So these are all the things that I'm thinking that at-home diagnostic equipment could have a huge role especially for things like continuous remote monitoring where you can actually see the patient in real time but the patient doesn't have to be in the hospital that's one of the things to look out for i think precision medicine or personalized medicine is still very vague we're trying to understand how does what does this mean but i think as more as there's more research being done we can start actually start seeing people using um the data or patients to actually customize healthcare based on um, the person, the person's genome, and but right now these are all just vague things that we hope there will be more research on for us to really be able to understand more. I think what is the most interesting thing about healthcare is the fact that every data, uh, the data of today will become obsolete by tomorrow. So there's new things um, coming into play every single day, and there's just it's just so much that your mind cannot even start to imagine what it could be. But I'm looking at a time whereby you can actually touch your Apple Watch, see all your data. You can see your heart rate. You can see your, your blood pressure, see your sugar being monitored with your Apple Watch. This is just wishful thinking, but I do think that we're actually getting to the point where you can actually manage your blood sugar using your Apple Watch. And then you can manage all the comorbidities that you have. You can actually check if your um your sugar is high if your insulin if you need to take insulin and maybe the watch might even be able to infuse insulin to you as well 
So these are not impossible things. It obviously will take time to come up. But I do see, I think, I think the trend we're getting into is when the patient actually has direct access to their healthcare data, to their healthcare, and they can actually take responsibility of, the, of themselves, as opposed to always going to the um, physician or the healthcare provider for any kind of healthcare treatment. Yeah, great. So I had asked this uh, about to Kunal the last time as the first thing, but I realized that I forgot to ask this uh, for you in terms of uh, when we started. So most important question, of course, how did you find your summer? <laughs> and also, uh, what would be your biggest, though, if you want to throw in more than just one, that's fine, biggest takeaways uh, that you learned while being at Creative? Yeah, so I want to use the opportunity to thank everybody in the creative team for making my summer the most enjoyable summer ever. I knew, like, I came into creative uh, already I've spoken to most of the team, so I knew that they were very, um, you guys were very pleasant people to work with. But I didn't know that I was going to find a family within the creative um, team. I think saying that not just for paying lip service, I think what was the most important thing at creative that I think was what creative did very well was allowing everybody to own, to own their decision, to own their workflow, their workflow process so it never felt like oh you're just a summer associate it always felt like you are part of the team and your input made a huge decision i did i remember feeling even at the second week of when i started that if i say no to this company it counts as one vote the same way james a partner saying no counts as one vote and that's a very powerful thing to give to a summer associate i just started working two weeks ago and i think and that just speaks to how much how much autonomy and how much empowerment is actually given to you at Creative Ventures. I'll say one thing um, that ties to that is that you start to, you, you have to create for yourself what you want to create at Creative Ventures, which is a lot of creating. But that, and I remember you telling me this in the start of my internship that you make the role what you want it to be. And I did see that a lot throughout my whole time here. It's been very enjoyable. I the highlight of my stay was talking to um, neurosurgeons, talking to very experienced um, entrepreneurs in this space and evaluating their companies. It's just something I didn't think I'll be able to do at this stage of my investment career. Um, in terms of takeaways, the key takeaway I'll say is that um, you, you, you always think, oh, you know the kind of investor you're going to be before you've actually had a chance to actually make investment decisions. So I've always looked at myself as a very risk tolerant person. I always felt like I was very creative, very innovative. But once you get into the position where you have to make investment decisions, then you start thinking about all the things that come into play when you're making an investment. And I don't think anybody can describe it for you. It's something you have to feel for yourself. So I remember um, there's a time, there's one of the companies you sent to me, James, and I just looked at the company and I was like, oh, this is a very interesting company. But when it, was, when it came to the point where, do we invest yes or no? Then it became a difficult, um, difficult answer to give because it's easy to say, oh, this company sounds good. This company sounds interesting. But when it comes to the point of yes or no, should we invest? And that's when everything starts coming to be, oh, I don't know. What if we're losing out on an opportunity? 
but what I learned from my my um, ten weeks working with um, the team at Creative Ventures is you have to take a stand and own that stand. So you're never going to be right 100%. You're never going to be right even 90, 90%. But that is the game. You just have to make sure that you have done your, your research. You've done adequate research to the point where you can say, yes, we should invest and this is why. Or no, we should not invest and this is why. And you have to be able to own that stand and say, even come five years from now, even if the company becomes a blockbuster company that you did not invest, you'll say, this was the reason why we did not invest. And if we had to make that decision again today, maybe now with what we've learned, we can change our stance. But at this time, at the time when we were making that decision, this was all we, all the information we had, and this was what we knew that we had to do. Wonderfully said. And uh, we will definitely miss you a lot as well. And uh, you did contribute a great deal. So I definitely think that you should uh, feel proud of that. And in terms of you know what sort of investor you are, I would definitely still say you are a creative risk taker. But yeah, just in terms of the journey of learning investments and money management and this stuff in general and taking risk, uh, it's something that you have to go through and experience. And it, I think you're well on your way in terms of that. So very uh, proud of all the work you did. And uh, thank you so much, Judy. Thank you so much, James. It's been a pleasure. All right. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you typically go for this sort of thing. If you like what you hear here, uh, visit us online at creativeventures.vc. Take a look at our other content and subscribe to our newsletter. If you want to get in contact, email us at invest at creativeventures.vc or tweet me, James, uh, at A-V-A-N-T-O-S. Thanks and hope to see you next time.